0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mona Mona's in trouble. Victor also in trouble. Well, let me say hello again to you all, especially if you're new. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors at the church and it's my privilege to be able to to preach this morning and to to engage in the ministry of the word. We've been in a series in the Old Testament book of First Samuel, and if so you have your Bibles, you can open them up to First Samuel 4. We'll be trying to cover the whole chapter, which is a lot of scripture, and so I won't read it this morning. We'll, we'll, we'll read it as we go along in the sermon itself. But my means of introduction, um, I'll just say that two weeks ago I preached a sermon about clerical abuse. So spiritual abuse within the church. Uh, Very few sermons have I preached where I've received more feedback. But it wasn't, it was just stories. Stories of people who have been hurt, who thought it was meaningful uh, to, to at least see a church talking about it heartbreaking stories. That afternoon, uh, the afternoon that I preached that sermon, the the Southern Baptist Convention released uh, a very lengthy document summarizing an investigation that they had had, a multi-year investigation into uh, church abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention, and to read it is to break your heart. Stories of misogyny, of men being protected, a lack of transparency, uh, so much devastation and hurt. And I'm not picking on the Southern Baptist Convention uh, because a week later, our own denomination released a 200-page study paper on abuse. It wasn't an investigation, but it was a group of pastors coming together to say, what do we do to... to to help clean up the church, to help to prepare pastors to help those who are hurt from all kinds of abuse, including spiritual abuse. Leadership is a sacred trust. Spiritual leadership is, and it's a trust that's often broken. And what we've seen at the beginning of 1 Samuel is a God who is committed to renewal, Commute, committed to blessing his people, but the first little section that we've had is him really beginning by cleaning up the mess that was made by disobedient and abusive leaders. And here we find the end of that tale. Um, we see what happens here, the cost of what happens when when that trust is broken. And we see a God at work amidst the wreckage, taking down an old regime to prepare the way for renewal, new leaders, holy leaders. And so that's where we're going today. Do you remember Hophni and Phineas? Bad guys. Remember Eli? Boo. Bad guy. Uh, we won't be hearing about them after today. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are good, and whenever I speak of church abuse or the hurt that people have experienced by your church, we, we have to be sobered, and for those people in this room who have courageously stepped in and are risking again on God, I pray that you would be with them very much. Pray with you that you would be with us today, Lord, that you would reveal your character, your love for us, your church, your gospel, and that we would find renewal um, amidst this sobering passage. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I always feel like when we come to these texts, like people who just come, they're visiting for the first time, you're like, you're welcome. I'm <laughs> really glad you're here. We don't, Okay. Let's start in verse 1. So this is 1 Samuel 4, verse 1. Let's just start digging in. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 4, men on the field of battle. And so maybe you haven't been along with us. If if you have, you'll know that this is a startling change of scene. This hasn't been about war up until this point. Just a lot of stories about Samuel, the kind of the rise of of Samuel, but he's conspicuously missing from this chapter. It's almost like the author is saying before Samuel can take his ultimate place, of leadership, the old regime has to come down. It's the first time we hear of the Philistines uh, in the book. It won't be the last. They're mentioned 150 times in First and Second Samuel, and uh, they're constant rivals of Israel and Israel's neighbors at this point. And it's uh, though we haven't heard from them, they've been a constant presence. We're supposed to know this book follows the book of Judges, where the Philistines are an ever-present enemy to Israel. And in the book of Judges, like if you've never read the book of Judges, it's a blast, let me tell you. (laughs) Israel is constantly turning away from God, turning to sin and idolatry. And as a result, they're always getting into trouble with the surrounding nations. In fact, there's this pattern that's formed throughout the book of Judges. Israel gets into trouble There's some military defeat. They cry out to God for help. And God in his mercy provides deliverance. And then there's a time of relative peace. But it never takes them very long to get into trouble again. They are always returning to the same broken patterns of relating to God and others. Can you relate? Ever get into the same trouble time and time again? They say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, that was the Israelites, and that's often us, and it looks like it's happened again because here's the Philistines. They're back. And Israel suffers a terrible military defeat. But notice what they don't do. They break the pattern. They don't cry out to God. They don't pray. They don't inquire of the Lord. They don't cry out in repentance. Rather, they ask a question. Verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Why wasn't the Lord with us, in other words? There's two ways to look at that question. And one is that it's the wrong question. Where they're clearly blaming God when it was their own stuff. That got them into that mess. You know, it's not uncommon for me as a pastor to have folks come into my office. Folks who have made some pretty obviously bad choices with their life. That have kind of blown up their marriage or their their business or whatever. And the posture of their heart initially is, why would God do this to me? I thought God was supposed to be faithful. Well, God speaks to us sometimes by letting us feel the consequences of our actions as a means of humbling us, waking us up. Perhaps the question should have been, how did we contribute to this mess? Or maybe that's judging the question a little harshly. After all, this is a God who'd entered into a covenant arrangement with Israel and made it clear that he would protect them in the land as long as they stayed true to him. Um, So long as they held up to their side of the bargain, which wasn't to be perfect, but was to reflect his heart and his character. If that's the case, then this is the right question. But it's not asked with sincerity. They don't want to know the answer, They don't linger with the question long enough. Ever ask God a question and then you don't wait to hear Him? You just go on to the next thing. You don't let Him speak. Perhaps this was like that. They don't let it lead them back to God's Word, which would have led them back to the terms of the covenant, which would have led them to a place of repentance. But however you look at the question that they asked, the point is the same. The, de- the devastation around them was proof that they were far from God, that there were significant changes that they needed to make. I wonder if we look at the devastation around the North American church and we ask if we are courageous enough to ask the questions we need, If we are patient enough to listen to God's spirit as he directs us. Um, But they don't humble themselves. They didn't want a God who was sovereign, who could speak to them through their losses. They wanted a God they could use to win all of their battles. So let's keep on going. What do they do next? They ask the question and then... Without pausing, they say, "Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who 's enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas were there with the ark of the covenant of the Lord and so their solution to a devastating loss was let's go get the ark of the covenant and if you didn't grow up with the Bible you're like what is the only reference you have for the ark of the covenant is raiders of the lost ark (laughs) and this is that but not really the Ark was a, a box covered in gold, but not a mere box. Well, actually, it was kind of small. Four feet in length by two feet. Have you thought of the Ark of the Covenant being that size? And it was really the center of Israelite worship. It represented God's throne. So his rule, his reign. It represented God's presence. In the Ark, there were three items. Bible nerds, do you know what they are? They were the, the tables of stone of the Ten Commandments. You, you can, if you know these, you can like win Bible trivia parties. Okay? The jar of manna from the wilderness. They kept some of the manna. And Aaron's rod. Somebody knows this stuff. Good job, man. Aaron's rod. That, is, that had buzzed. So these three objects had significance. God had commanded them, God had provided for them, and God had saved them. And so looking at the ark, you remember his rule, his reign, you remember all these things about the character of God. The ark was significant, full of meaning, but it did not have magical powers. Sorry, Nazis in Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) It didn't work like that. It was not a talisman. It was not a magic charm. But that's how they were treating it. As long as they had the ark, they would be good. It's almost like someone having a defeat in life and then coming and being like, I'm going to grab the cross from Grace Chapel Sanctuary. And I'm going to take it with me. Because surely, if I'm carrying the cross, how could God be against me? Like it's some kind of magic foot. And we're moderns. We lie, we're we like, ha ha! Silly, ancient Israelites. Are we immune to such thinking though? I remember the, the, the talisman-like power I used to give to like my quiet times as a pastor. Like if I missed a morning or missed a week reading the scriptures in the morning, I would feel like the bad stuff that happened to me was a result of my missing my time in the scriptures. We can turn anything into a pious superstition. Even church attendance and participation. Man, if I just show up on Sunday morning, or if I join the right ministry team, I won't tell you which one is the right ministry team. God will bless my life. None of those things is bad, just like the ark isn't bad. In fact, all of those things are excellent and beneficial, but they can all be approached with this pious superstition. And there's a reason why believers have this tendency towards superstition. It's because life is hard. Life is difficult. Life is complex superstitions boil down that complexity to an input output equation if i do my devotions i'll have a good day if i have a rosary on my rear view mirror i won't get into an accident superstitions give us the illusion of control the world can be a terrifying place full of awful days Hard diagnoses, car accidents. And God hasn't promised to spare us from those things. So instead, we turn often to behaviors and routines and talismans that we think will give us protection. The fact is that a relationship with a living God is risky, it's scary. It requires vulnerability, trust, and growth on our part. God is always working to mess with us by His Spirit in our victories and in our failures and suffering. He uses all of the tools available to shape us into the people He's called us to be. That's a hard, messy process. Superstitions are easier. The rosary on the mirror protects you from car accidents without the hassle of actively trusting in Christ. It doesn't require the difficult work of learning what he's teaching you in suffering. Even our deep theological knowledge can be like a talisman by giving us a false assurance that we're going to be okay because we believe the right thing. Instead of just having to to be in relationship with a living God who is not in our control. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we aren't presented with a thing and it. God is not a thing to be used, but a person to be loved and trusted. Eugene Peterson puts it like this, and I love this quote. He says, There is much that's mysterious about our faith, but there's nothing magic about it. Magic can be manipulated. Mystery cannot. Magic breeds superstition, whereas mystery breeds a sense of the sacred. I like that. Religion always falls into ritual, routine, superstition. You're always trying to get your hand on the right method or technology or book or app or, or piece of information when what you need is him. Time with him. Your heart given to him to be in a dynamic relationship with him. Sometimes you need to stop reading the book to be with the Lord. If you're evaluating worship based on the hype that you felt, like whether it worked or not, sometimes you need to let the music be whatever it is and lead you into relationship with the Lord. Sometimes we think the sermon is bad. Well, sometimes it is bad. But sometimes you think... The sermon is bad because you haven't found a piece of practical application that you can use to win in life. When really every part of our service is there for you and me to be able to connect with the heart of a God who loves you. He's not a thing to be used, an insight to be had, He's a person to be loved. They knew religion, they knew ritual, they did not know the Lord. And how did that all work out for them? Well, let's go down to verse 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What an absolute disaster. And the language is graphic. 30,000 Israeli soldiers slaughtered. Second, the Ark of the Covenant was taken. And lastly, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Well, that kind of seems anticlimactic. Why end with Hophni and Phinehas? Why tell us the name of two men when 30,000 soldiers died? Why end on that note? Why not end with the loss of the ark? Isn't that the climactic moment? The ark that symbolized the presence of God? Shouldn't we care more about that? Why give the death of Hophni and Phineas this privileged and climactic position in the text? Because the author wants us to know something important. That despite appearances, God is very much in control. With the loss of the ark, everyone in this story would have been tempted to believe that God had failed, that God had lost, that he had been defeated. But as my dear sister Mona says, God can do anything but fail. And with the mention of Hophni and Phinehas, we're reminded that God is very much in control. Remember who Hophni and Phinehas were very bad dudes who had abused their spiritual authority led the the nation of Israel astray and in chapter 2 God had sent a prophet to Eli their father their father who had sat by idly watching the devastation never lifting a hand to stop it and he had sent them a prophet to say i'm going to take the priesthood away from you and your family and this will be the sign your sons will both die on the same day so don't miss the way that god is working here it's easy to get wrapped up in the bloodiness of israel's defeat in the tragedy of the ark's capture in what seems to be a blot on God's reputation. And in it, we can become blind to the fact that in the middle of all this, God is clearly but quietly fulfilling the word that he's spoken. On a day that seems to dishonor God, get this point. God was in fact protecting his honor by fulfilling his word and by judging these leaders who had so tarnished his name. There had been a tragic cost to Hophni and Phinehas' sin and failed leadership. 30,000 died because of their leadership and lack of, lack, they didn't prepare Israel. The Israel was superstitious because these individuals had failed in describing and mediating God to them. Leaders who don't know God cause damage. They leave devastation in their midst. And so, yeah, you can read this as a harsh act of judgment, but you can also see it as an act of grace. For in this judgment, he is removing false shepherds that cause his people so much pain, have caused some so much pain and caused others to go astray. In the midst of the wreckage, God is at work. Fulfilling the promises made in his word. Preparing the land for renewal. The story goes on to describe two individuals' reactions to the ark being taken away. And so I'm going to read a pretty lengthy section of text here. uh, Verses 12 through, I think it's 22. And so this is God's word. Um, Pay attention, there's some cool stuff in here. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that they could not see. That's not just physical. So he didn't have spiritual sight either. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from battle. I have fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy; he had judged Israel forty years. Second reaction: now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas. So this was the wife of Phineas. It would have not been easy to be Phineas's wife. She was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured. And that her father in law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains had come upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Don't be afraid, you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, which means, Where is glory? saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two reactions here. Old man, Eli, and Phineas's wife. Notice that each of them die from shock. But the shock isn't about the death of Hophni and Phineas. Hophni and Phineas were Eli's sons. Phineas was his wife's husband, of course. But their deaths didn't bother them. It's kind of the Bible throwing the last bit of shade on Hophni and Phineas. Even those closest to them knew that they had it coming. But it was the news of the ark of the Lord that caused the shock that, that made both of them die. Um, and there in first is Eli, he's there sitting Notice that he's always sitting. And I think what the, the author of the scripture, the spirit is telling us is that he never had the courage to leave. He never had the courage to remove his sons from office. In fact, he, he spent his whole life benefiting from their disobedience. Because notice that the text also says that he's heavy. Now, why would he give us that fact? Why would it matter that he's a little overweight? Is the Bible being mean? When it gives us a detail, it matters. And previously, it had told us that remember what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. Partly, they were stealing meat from the people's sacrifices, whatever they could get. And it seems like Eli was participating in their sin, benefiting from their sin. And he had grown very heavy. Bible nerd point. The word heavy is the same word for glory. And so when it says, where is the glory? They name the kid, where is the glory? In Eli's, it's around your waist. He was glorious. And he fell, and it was his own sin that killed him. He fell off the chair. And it was his weight, his ill-gotten glory that took him out. I love biblical, poetic justice. Um, What a tragic end, though. He falls off the chair, breaks his neck. Phineas' wife is also a tragic story. Phineas is a bad guy. He would abuse women and sleep with them at the temple, so it couldn't have been easy to be his wife. And we get a glimpse of her, and she's pregnant with a child, and she hears the news of the ark going, and it causes her to go into labor, And she tragically dies in childbirth, but not before naming the child Ichabod, which is where is glory? And her reasoning is that the glory has departed from Israel. Literally in Hebrew, the has gone into exile. The glory has gone into exile. That's an important point. And so the author leaves us with this question where is the glory? And both Phineas' wife and Eli believe it's gone. Believe that God has lost glory. They, they mistakenly see the capture of God's ark as defeat. But we know more than they do. God is actually reestablishing his glory. Where is his glory? It is in the justice of a God who removes false leaders who hurt his people and dishonor his name. Where is the glory? It's in a personal God who will not be reduced to a trinket or a talisman. Where is the glory? It is in the wisdom of a God who understands that he must sometimes depart from us in order that we might seek him rightly. Where is the glory It is in the mercy of a God who takes the greatest act of judgment on himself. Get this point. Remember when I said that it could be translated the glory has uh, gone into exile from Israel. That's significant. Previously we said that Israel was in a covenant relationship with God and in the covenant there's blessings and cursings. And the climactic curse Of the covenant is the curse of exile. And in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it lists all the curses of the covenant and it says, in the end, if Israel persists in sin and idolatry, after the Lord has brought all the other curses upon her, he would eventually cast her out of the land. So the curse of exile was the curse looming in the background in the days of Eli. They had been sinful for a very long time. But you know what never happened? Israel wasn't sent into exile. The ark was sent into exile. God went into exile, taking the curse of the covenant, the greatest curse on himself. And what we'll see next week is that while in exile, he will fight for his people and he will win many battles without them lifting a hand. God is seemingly humiliated. But really what he's doing is he's taking the curse and winning the battles for his people. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something that our God would do? Take the greatest curse upon us and it looks like defeat. It looks like humiliation. It looks like shame. But what he's doing is he's taking the curse upon himself. So that we would know he may leave us for a time. He'll never leave us forever. He is a glorious and good God. Where is the glory? It is in the heart of a God who would send Jesus for you, sister. For you, brother. For me in all of my sin. So let me just take a moment to apply this if I could. It's devastating to look around and to hear all the stories going on, uh, real stories about hurt and pain in the church. And it may seem like we're losing, that God is losing glory as the attendance numbers in our church go down, as leaders in sin are exposed more and more. But I think what 1 Samuel would teach us is that it's just it's just the... It's just the dark before the dawn. Usually there is a reckoning that happens before renewal. And I would tend to say that the the North American church is in that place. And what we need to do is say, Lord, we should ask the question, why are we losing? And then we should have the courage to sit and to linger and to let God raise up new leaders To expose what needs to be exposed so that the church can be new. And we can know that he's going to do that um, because he sent Jesus. He'll never, he'll never, uh, he'll never leave us. One last story. So, man, this is, it's not easy to preach these messages as a pastor, man. You just, you want to do something else. You want to quit your job and you want to work somewhere else. And uh, so I was thinking, how do I, I don't want to die like Eli. That's what I said. I don't want to die. I don't want to die like Eli. And I was saying, Lord, how do I not die like Eli? And I, and he sent me a gift. I was listening to a podcast and there was an illustration that a, that a, a, a pastor used that had to do with a man and death, and a chair, but it was so different from Eli, and it's been like a north star to me, guiding me as I think about what I want to be as a pastor. Can I tell you the story? Let me tell you. There's a man who's dying of cancer, and his daughter calls on a priest, and the priest goes and visits the man and it's interesting cuz he walks into the living room and there's the man on the couch and then there's a, just a chair in the middle of the room that's empty. It looks out of place. And eventually the 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 pastor asks the man about the chair in the middle of the room and he says, "Well, I'm a little embarrassed to talk about it, but I always had trouble praying. But then I got this diagnosis." And I just thought, well, I'm just going to put an empty chair in front of me and believe that Jesus is there. And I'm just going to talk to the chair like he's a man just sitting right in front of me. And he says, priest, is that bad? The priest says, no, that's not bad at all. And sanctifies the moment, blesses the man and leaves. A couple of months later, the daughter calls the priest again and says, my father died in the hospital, and the priest asked the daughter, did he, how did that go? How did he pass? And she said, peacefully. You know, I was, I was in there, and we had had a long conversation, and he told me he was at peace and that he loved me, and I went to go get some lunch. And when I returned, the nurses told me that he had, that he had died, But that it was strange because his head wasn't on the pillow. There was an empty chair where I had been sitting talking to him, and his head was resting in the chair, almost like in the lap of the Savior that he loved. And so I just thought, I want to be a man who dies with his head in the chair. You want to be a woman who dies with your head in the chair, who doesn't know your God like an idea, but as a person who loves you very much. And I'm like, if I can keep an empty chair and just keep talking to it like a crazy person, it's the most sane thing that I could do. And it'll keep me on the straight and narrow. Can I pray for us? Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We talk to you like you're here because you are. You are not a thing to be used, but a person to be loved. And you care about your church very much. And we may see it and think that we're losing. We may see devastation and darkness. But a passage like this gives us hope to say that you're in the work in the midst of it cleaning up the mess both in our hearts and the church so that renewal can happen so that revival can happen but it starts with repentance it starts with people who just love you and are care for you are vulnerable for you who are seeking your face and we want to be those people and so these passages in Samuel they're they're sobering but they're good lord and i pray that they would shape our hearts as a congregation We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.